have a Bible uh, tonight, we do have Bibles at the doors to give to you. That's our gift uh, to you. Please feel free to pick one up uh, and then take it home and study with us. So let's turn in our Bibles to Judges chapter 11 this evening. Judges chapter 11. We're, Lord willing, going to look at Judges 11 and Judges chapter 12. And read ahead in the book of Judges because next week we're going to start studying the life of Samson. Such a great study looking at uh, his life together. Would you join me in prayer? Father, as we come and study your word tonight, we just pray that our hearts would be fresh, that our minds would be open. Father, would you send your Holy Spirit to lead us and guide us in truth? May your word fall upon fertile soil. May we learn these lessons that are here for us in these two chapters. Would you bind the enemy? We know he's real. We know he wants to to rob and steal and destroy, to take the word of God from our hearts. Lord, would you bless this time? Would you set me aside? Give me grace and strength in communicating your word. In Jesus' name, amen. There's a lot of hard lessons in life, isn't there? And many times the hard lessons are self-inflicted. We had to learn the hard way. I remember my dad had an old-timer pocket knife. If you've ever seen those or maybe you have one of those, or some of the best pocket knives in the world. And he kept his old-timer pocket knife. It was only about this big in the top of his dresser. And he had this little bowl, glass bowl, with change in it, and then his pocket knife. And I was probably five or six, and of course, dad would always say, don't run your finger along the blade of the pocket knife, right? Well, I had to test that out for myself. So I opened up that pocket knife, and sure enough, I ran my finger across the blade, and it was sharp, just like dad said it was. That was a hard lesson, and I gained an appreciation for that old-timer pocket knife. And as we're going to read tonight in Scripture, there's some hard lessons, but here's the beauty of it, is we can learn from other people's experience. That's the joy of studying the Scriptures, and especially the Old Testament, as it's in story form about people's lives, as we can go, I know I'm going to go through this or something like this. I remember this Bible character, and it's a very vivid lesson for us. I always think that the sanctuary is a very comfortable place to learn some of these hard lessons. Don't you agree? It's fairly nice chairs, not the best in the world. The the temperature's fairly comfortable, and we're not out there knocking our head against the wall. So may the Lord speak to you tonight in these hard lessons. And the main character that we're going to look at is Jephthah, this, this judge. If you remember last week, what did we talk about last week if you were here? Shout it out to me. What did we talk about? What? Repentance. All right. We talked about repentance. The children of Israel had gone back into idolatry. They turned to the Lord, and God says, I'm not going to deliver you. Then they showed the fruits of repentance, the actions of repentance, and God had mercy upon them. And he says, I am going to raise up a deliverer. And so chapter 12 is this deliverer. And like the other judges, it's an unlikely character. It's not somebody that we would probably choose to be the next deliverer, but it shows the way that God uses the unlikely for his glory. So verse 1 of chapter 11. Now Jephthah the Gileite was a mighty man of valor, but he was the son of a harlot, and Gilead begot Jephthah. So here he is, a man of valor, a 
a warrior, a man of character, but his mom was a harlot. So his dad at some point decided that he was going to enter into this sinful relationship. But this is who God chooses to be the next judge, to be the next deliverer. And we all have a pit that God has delivered us from. In Isaiah 51 verse 1, it says, Look to the rock from which you were hewn and to the hole of the pit from which you were dug. We all have a pit that God dug us out of. Amen? And it may have been the pit of our family. Our family was dysfunctional. Show me a family that's not dysfunctional. About every family in the Bible is dysfunctional. And you go, man, God pulled me out of the pit of my family. I'm so thankful that he rescued me. Or our own sin, our own rebellion that God has pulled us out of. We're encouraged in this way. Abraham, this great man of faith who's the father of Israel, on two different occasions out of fear, lied and said that his wife was his sister in order to save his own skin. Later on in his life, he decides to have a relationship with Sarah's handmaiden, Hagar, and we're still experiencing the consequences of that. By no means was Abraham a perfect man, but yet God used him. Moses, God used Moses to deliver the children of Israel out of Egypt. He murdered a man, didn't he? And that was God's choice. This man, God rescued him out of that pit. We continue on, we look at the life of David. David, a man after God's own heart, but he as well committed murder. He committed adultery, but yet God transformed his life. God used his life for his glory. Jonah's one of my personal favorites. Maybe you're familiar with his story because he was called to go to Nineveh to share the good news with, with Nineveh, the Assyrian people. But the Assyrians were enemies of Israel. So he says, this is the last thing I want to do on the earth is go to our enemies and teach them and preach to them about the love of God. He gets there a very difficult way by the means of a whale, ultimately being thrown up, vomited by the whale, comes to Nineveh, goes through the city, and the city repents. It's one of the greatest revivals in the history of the world, and Jonah's pouting about it. Jonah's going, oh man, I knew God would forgive these guys. That's why I didn't want to come here in the first place. Not a perfect vessel, not a perfect person, but yet the Lord used him. We get into the New Testament. We look at Peter, denied the Lord three times, but yet the Lord chose Peter to be give the first message of the church where 3,000 people get saved. Paul, he writes a third of the New Testament, but you know he persecuted the church. God takes us out of the pit. So you may think that your pit, your, your family, the mistakes that you've made, this isn't an excuse to stay in your sin. These men didn't stay in their sin, but it does show us that God will bring us out of a pit and use us for his glory. You can rise above from where your family's coming from. Isn't that good news? That's what Jephthah does. Verse 2, Gilead's wife bore sons, and when his wife's sons grew up, they drove Jephthah out and said to him, you shall have no inheritance in our father's house, for you are the son of another mother. Talk about rejection, right? You don't belong here. The jokes. In this culture, to be born of a harlot was something that you couldn't get away from. The stigma that would, would be there for Jephthah. You can hear these brothers start to 
jeer and snarl at Jephthah. I'm sure Jephthah looked different, don't you? He's got, he's got a different mom. He's got some different physical features. And they're pointing those things out, and they're saying, you're, you're gone, you're done, you've got to get out of here, and they reject him. In verse 3, then Jephthah fled from his brothers and dwelt in the land of Oz. No, he dwelt in the land of Tob. And worthless men bounded together with Jephthah and went out raiding with him. This is similar to David, where David has a group of rough characters that gather around him, and so does Jephthah. They're poor, they're without property, they're without employment, and they come around Jephthah. It came to pass, verse 4, after a time that the people of Ammon made war against Israel. And so it was when the people of Ammon made war against Israel that the elders of Gilead went to get Jephthah from the land of Tob. Then they said to Jephthah, come and be our commander, that we may fight against the people of Ammon. Well, this is interesting. This reject has become a great warrior that they can't live without. There's a lesson here for us, church, brothers and sisters in Christ, is you may be rejected by your own family. You may be rejected by fellow brothers and sisters in Christ. Don't get hung up about it. Don't allow it to get into your headspace. You keep walking with the Lord. You keep walking in integrity. You be a warrior for Christ. And eventually, they're going to come around and they're going to see who you are. And the true colors will really come out. And they may even come back to you later and say, you know, we really need you. Would you come and would you help us out? There's a saying, and I heard this from an older pastor in town. Time is on the side of integrity. Time's on the side of integrity. Don't get discouraged. Walk with the Lord. Be a warrior for Christ. And many times those who have ridiculed you will come back to a point where they need you. In verse 7, So Jephthah said to the elders of Gilead, Do you not hate me and expel me from my father's house? Why have you come to me? now when you are in distress. He deals with the issues. He's saying, what's up, guys? You guys kicked me out. You expelled me. You didn't want anything to do with me. Now you show up when you're in distress. He speaks the truth. He deals with the issues. Verse 8, And the elders of Gilead said to Jephthah, That is why we've turned again to you now, that you may go with us and fight against the people of Ammon and be our head over all the inhabitants of Gilead. So first it was, be our commander, but now we want you to be our head. We want you to be our leader. Jephthah's going to clarify this. Verse 9, So Jephthah said to the elders of Gilead, If you take me back home to fight against the people of Ammon, and the Lord delivers them to me, shall I be your head? And the elders of Gilead said to Jephthah, The Lord be a witness between us. If we don't do according to your words, then Jephthah went with the elders of Gilead, and the people made him head and commander over them. And Jephthah spoke all of his words before the Lord in Mizpah. Not only is he going to be the commander, but if they win the battle, then he's going to be the head. He's going to be the leader. Interesting that this happens at Mizpah. Write down Genesis 31, verse 49. Jacob and Laban. The father-in-law was Laban. Jacob knows that he's lost favor with his father-in-law. It's always clear if you've lost favor with your father-in-law, right? He knows it's happened. So he leaves and he flees, takes his possessions with him. And here comes Laban after Jacob. And there's this disagreement in Genesis 31. And in this place, Mizpah, 
they come to a place of peace, and Mizpah means the Lord watch between you and me. And maybe you've seen this on greeting cards, like if you have a friend that's moving across the country, you know, it says, Mizpah, the Lord watch between you and me. That's not the idea. The idea is we're enemies here, and if someone crosses this agreement, God's going to get you. This is before the Lord. And that's what we find here with Jephthah and with these men of Gilead. There's not peace between these guys. And they say, we're making this agreement as Mizpah, at Mizpah, the same place as Jacob and Laban, because if either of them break it, then the Lord is the witness. The Lord's the one who's going to hold this contract. Verse 12. Now Jephthah sent messengers to the king of the people of Ammon, saying, what do you have against me? that you have come to fight against me in my land. Remember, Ammon is attacking Israel, attacking Gilead. And here Jephthah shows great wisdom. And he asks a question before he goes into battle. Do you know how much heartache that would save us before we go into a verbal battle with a family member, with a friend, with a brother and sister in Christ? Is if we had the wisdom to ask a question. To go, why are you so mad? Why are you coming at me? Why are we fighting over this? And that's the question that Jephthah has. Verse 13, And the king of the people of Ammon answered the messengers of Jephthah, because Israel took away my land when they came up out of Egypt from Arnon as far as the Jabbok into the Jordan. Now therefore restore those lands peacefully. And what Jabeth is doing in this section of scripture is he's trying to solve the conflict through diplomacy. He's trying to find a peaceful solution. And this should always be our intent with any kind of conflict. We want to be a peacemaker. Blessed are the peacemakers. Jephthah is going to review with the children of Ammon how this conflict took place over the land. And it goes back to when the children of Israel came out of Egypt and they're coming into Israel in the book of, of Numbers. We'll see how this developed in verse 14. So Jephthah again sent messengers to the king of the people of Ammon and said to him, thus says Jephthah, Israel did not take away the land of Moab nor the land of the people of Ammon. For when Israel came up from Egypt, they walked through the wilderness as far as the Red Sea and they came to Kadesh. It was a little bit over a year ago that as a church, a handful of us were able to go to Israel, and we went to this wilderness area. Not this exact region, but we got into southern Israel that was, the geography was very similar. And when it says wilderness, don't think Colorado wilderness. Don't think nice lush forests and meadows and aspen trees. This is Buttsville. There's no really other way to say this. This is hot arid, dry, there's nothing around. I probably won't say that tomorrow because it's, <laughs> it's Sunday, right? It's Sunday morning. Not a place that you'd want to be. And, and the children of Israel are walking through the wilderness, this hot and arid, arid desert. Verse 17, then Israel sent messengers to the king of Eden saying, please let me pass through your land. They're wanting the shortest route to the promised land. But the king of Eden would not heed. And in like manner, they sent to the king of Moab, but he would not consent. So they say, no way. So Israel remained in Kadesh. And they went along through the wilderness and bypassed the land of Edom and the land of Moab. 
came to the east side of the land of Moab and encamped on the other side of the Arnon. But they didn't enter the border of Moab, for the Arnon was the border of Moab. The Arnon River was the, the border. Then Israel sent messengers to Shihon, king of the Amorites, king of Heshbon, and Israel said to him, so this is with whom they're having the conflict, the Amorites. This is where the conflict first started. Please let us pass through your land into our place. But Shihon didn't trust Israel to pass through his territory. So Shihon gathered all of his people together and encamped in Jahaz and fought against Israel. Proverbs talks about be careful before you start a fight, before strife enters out like headwaters. Some of us have experienced that. We, we picked a fight that we didn't need to in, enter into. And all of a sudden, here comes this huge mess of problems. And that's what happens for the Amorites. How easy it would have been to say, hey guys, children of Israel, you can just go through our land. But instead, they were stubborn. They wanted to fight Israel. Verse 21, and the Lord God of Israel delivered Shihan and all of his people into the hand of Israel and defeated them. So God stood up for his people, stood up for the children of Israel. Can I pause right here and bring some application to current events? Is there dispute today over the land of Israel? And do you find yourself as a believer having a hard time sorting this out? It's very possible because of the media. You go, I don't, I'm not sure who's right in this. And I'm not sure whose land is it. So I'll go back to Genesis chapter 12. And you'll find that God speaks to Abraham. And God says, I'm giving this land to you, Abraham, and to your descendants. This is the only time that God does this throughout all of Scripture, that he gives a land to a group of people. And then you'll find also that God says about the children of Israel that they're my chosen people, they're my special treasure. The New Testament tells us that salvation came from the Jews. How did that happen? Through Jesus. He was Jewish. And so there's several levels that we look at and we go, one, God gave this land to Israel in Genesis chapter 12. God said, they're my special treasure. Salvation came through the Jews. And so because of that, because salvation came from the Jews, there's a part for us to honor the Jewish people. And so from God's perspective, it's not a question of whose land this belongs to. It belongs to the children of Israel. And the Lord tells us that he'll bless those who bless Abraham's descendants. Historically, it's been one of the best things that the United States has done to be an ally of the nation of Israel because we're putting ourselves in allegiance with God. I think if you put this into an American context, there, there's nothing about our borders or our land that has been given to us by God, you know? God doesn't say in his word, you know, right here below Canada, this is going to be the United States of America. And right here above the Mexico border, this is going to be the United States of America. Even without God drawing our boundaries, do you think that we would just allow somebody to come in and say, I'm taking the state of Texas. It belongs to me. We're like, no, I don't think so. You're not taking the state of Texas, especially if you're from Texas, right? just doesn't work that way. It doesn't work that way in any country in the world. Look at Ukraine. Ukraine's not just going, okay, this is kind of like monopoly. We'll just hand over our land to you. Russia, you can have it. 
There's a war happening in Ukraine over the land. And so is it wrong for Israel to defend their land? No, it's not wrong for Israel to do that. Now, inside of war, is every action, do we condone? No, it's not we condone every action, but we understand from a very principle level, from a truth level, that the land does belong to Israel. How I think this correlates, as we're reading in Judges 11, is Israel didn't pick the fight here in what we're reading. And a lot of times when you really look into the articles, Israel is desiring peace. And they're not the ones starting the conflict. They're being attacked and they respond to those attacks. I hope you know this about the media. You got to dig down for good sources. Amen? You can't just take everything that's being spoon-fed to you. So let's pick it back up in verse 21. And the Lord God of Israel delivered Shihon and all of his people into the hand of Israel and they defeated them, and Israel gained possession of all the land of the Amorites who inhabited that country. They took possession of all the territory of the Amorites from the Arnon to the Jabbok, from the wilderness to the Jordan. Verse 23, And now the Lord God of Israel has dispossessed the Amorites from before his people Israel. Should you then possess it? He's saying God is giving us this land. Will you not possess whatever Chemosh, your God, gives you to possess? This is their false God that they bowed down to. So whatever the Lord, our God, takes possession of before us, we will possess. Jephthah says, we're entering into what God has given us. Verse 25. And now are you any better than Balak, the son of Zippor, king of Moab? Did he ever strive against Israel? Did he ever fight against them? The story of Balak, going back to to Numbers, the the king of Moab comes against Israel and he hires Balak to curse the children of Israel. As he's headed to do this, who shows up? The angel of the Lord in the path of Balaam. And Balaam's walking and Balaam's coming towards him. Balaam's this hired prophet and the donkey speaks to Balaam. That's a heavy story, isn't it? be kind of freaky if maybe you started beating your dog and then your dog started, hey, what did I ever do to you? And that's exactly what happened to Balaam. Balak hires Balaam and God brought to nothing this plan to curse Israel. And we find here that Jephthah reminds them of this. In verse 26, while Israel dwelt in Heshbon in its villages and Aror in its villages and all the cities along the banks of Arnon, for 300 years. Why did you not recover them from within that time? Hey, we've been here for 300 years. Why didn't you come and take this land then? Verse 27, therefore I've not sinned against you, but you wronged me by fighting against me. Hey guys, you started this. May the Lord the judge render judgment this day between the children of Israel and the people of Ammon. God's going to sort this out, Jephthah's saying. If I'm wrong, we're going to be defeated. However, the king of the people of Ammon did not heed the words which with Jephthah sent him. So he wouldn't take a path of peace. Verse 29, Then the Spirit of the Lord came upon Jephthah, and he passed through Gilead and Manasseh, and passed through Mizpah of Gilead. And from Mizpah to Gilead, he advanced towards the people of Ammon. We've found this in the book of Judges, haven't we? God's Spirit falls upon the judge. This isn't man's strength. This isn't human strength. This is supernatural strength that comes from the power of God. We need the Spirit of God. 
to do the work of God. What God's called you to in your marriage, with your kids, how you're supposed to serve in the body of Christ, to be a witness in your street and in your community. There's no way. We can't do it apart from the Spirit of God. There's no questions in the New Testament. The Spirit is given. Jesus died and rose again so the Spirit could be in us, the temple of the Holy Spirit, so the Spirit could come upon us. Make it your daily prayer, your moment-to-moment prayer. God, empower me with your Spirit. Help me to yield to, to your Spirit. This isn't Jephthah in his own strength. Verse 30, we get to one of these hard lessons, verse 30 and 31. And Jephthah made a vow to the Lord and said, if you will indeed deliver the people of Ammon into my hands, then it will be that whatever comes out of the doors of my house to meet me, when I return in peace from the people of Ammon, shall surely be the Lord's, and I will offer it up as a burnt offering. Why does Jephthah do this? He feels that he has to make a vow in order for God to give him the victory. God's already going to give the victory. God's already given him the spirit. God's already moving. He just simply has to trust in what God's already doing. But instead he says, all right, God, I'm going to make a commitment. I'm going to make a solemn vow to you. If you give me the victory, then I'm going to take whatever comes out of the door of my house and offer it as a burnt offering. So here's the lesson for us, as we'll see this play out, is don't make foolish vows before God. In Ecclesiastes 5, it says this, Do not be rash with your mouth, and let your heart utter anything hastily before God. For God's in heaven, and you're on earth. Therefore, let your words be few. For a dream comes through much activity, and a fool's voice is known by his many words. When you make a vow to God, do not delay to pay it, for he has no pleasure in fools. Pay what you vowed. Better to not vow than to vow and not pay. Let not your mouth cause your flesh to sin, nor say before the messenger of God that it was an heir. Why should God be angry at your excuse and destroy the work of your hands? That's well put, isn't it? It's better not to make a commitment to God if you're not planning on fulfilling it before the Lord. What is it inside of us, like Jephthah, that thinks that we have to make some kind of vow for God for him to work in our lives? Let's take, for instance, that someone's child is deathly ill and they're about ready to pass away. It's very common for someone to say, God, if you heal my son, if you heal my daughter, I'm going to serve you. And sometimes God meets somebody in that way. But I suggest to you that God in his will and his plan He's going to heal or he's going to not heal. And it's not dependent on whether you make the vow or not. God doesn't need us to come and say, well, I'm going to do this for you if you do this for me. You know, we're not teaching toddlers to share here. You know what I'm saying? You know how you teach toddlers to share? Okay, I'm going to give this to you. Now you give this to me. And we don't have that kind of arrangement with God. It's what has God said? Where is God moving? Where is his spirit? And we trust that and we get behind that. We don't need to go to the Lord and say, well, God, if you move in my family, then I'm committing to reading my Bible every day. I'm making this solemn vow before you if you you work in my family. No, God's working in your family. Trust it. Move along with it. And read God's word out of response to his grace, not some silly vow that we have put ourselves into. We've got to be careful with these vows that we make and the heart behind it. Verse 32 
So Jephthah advanced towards the people of Ammon to fight against them, and the Lord delivered them into his hands. Don't forget how much grace this is from God. Go back to chapter 10, the kind of sin that the children of Israel were in. If you missed last week's study, go online, go to the media center, pick it up and listen to it. Because God was done. He was like, I'm not delivering you anymore. And when he saw the fruits of their repentance, the actions of their repentance, then he chose to raise up a deliverer. And he defeated them from Aurora as far as Mineth, 20 cities. So this is a large victory. And to Abel, Kirithim, with a great slaughter. Thus the people of Ammon were subdued before the children of Israel. Now to be honest with you, this would be a great place for the chapter to end. <laughs> if it would end in verse 34. But it does not. When Jephthah came to his house at Mizpah, there was his daughter coming out to meet him with tremble, timbrels and dancing, and she was his only child. Beside her he had neither son nor daughter. It came to pass when he saw her that he tore his clothes and said, Alas, my daughter, you've brought me very low. You are among those who trouble me. For I've given my word to the Lord, and I cannot go back on it. And I'm just going, Jephthah, what did you expect to come out of the front door? I mean, what were you really expecting to run out that you were going to offer to God as a, as a burnt sacrifice? It seems to be a foolish vow that he made. Maybe he was thinking, my favorite dog is going to run out. And I'm going to miss my dog, and this is going to be so sad, but I can offer my dog. Maybe he had a terrible marriage and he thought his wife was going to come out to meet him. <laughs> it's like, I, I can do without her, you know? Who knows? But, but what was he thinking? Here's his daughter, his only daughter. Something must have been going on with the fertility of him and his wife at this time. Kids didn't just, people, couples didn't just have one child. So this, God worked to bless them with this, this one child and here she comes and if he's going to fulfill, fulfill his vow, then he would sacrifice her. Verse 36, so she said to him, my father, if you've given your word to the Lord, do to me according to what he has gone out, what, of what has gone out of your mouth, because the Lord has avenged you of your enemies, the people of Ammon. What an amazing daughter. This heart of this daughter of saying, dad, I don't want you to go back on your commitment to God. Here's an insight that we find from Jephthah's daughter. Is if you have children, if you have grandchildren, they really do want you to walk in integrity. They really do want me to walk in integrity. My kids want that from me. They desire, say, Dad, don't, don't give up on your commitment to God. Don't turn away from your commitment to God. In verse 37, then she said to her father, let this thing be done for me. Let me alone for two months that I may go and wander on the mountains and bewail my virginity, my friends and I. Marriage, such a big part of their culture. She knows she's not going to be married. Sometimes you hear this sentiment around couples that are engaged in the church that are like, man, I hope the rapture happens after my honeymoon, after I'm married, you know? They're like, the rapture would be great, but I'm looking forward to being married. I've been anticipating this. You guys are looking at me like I'm lying. No, it's true. It's true. You probably felt that way at some point in your journey as well. You just don't want to admit it, right? <laughs> and she's, she's bewailing this. She's lamenting the fact that she's not going to be married. 
that she's not going to have kids. In verse 38, so he said, go, and he sent her away for two months, and she went with her friends and bewailed her virginity on the mountains. And it was so at the end of two months that she returned to her father, and he carried out his vow with her, which he had vowed. She knew no man. And it became a custom in Israel that the daughters of Israel went four days each year to lament the daughter of Jephthah the Gileadite. Now there is two views on this section of scripture. And the question is this. Is, was the vow to kill his daughter? Or was the vow to have the daughter go into perpetual virginity? We do know from the Old Testament from the law that some would go and serve in the tabernacle like Samuel did. And some look at this and they say, well, because there's this mention of virginity and she's bewailing her, her virginity, that that's what happened. Is, is she was taken to the tabernacle and never got, got to marry. That, that's one view. The other view is, is that he indeed did kill his daughter. And there's a lot of wise men and men that love the Lord that are in different camps of this, and obviously it's not a doctrine that divides us. I personally think it's clear, in my view, that he did sacrifice his daughter. If he didn't sacrifice his daughter, why would they have a custom every year to lament Jephthah's daughter? A woman not getting married is not so unusual that there would be this custom every year to say, look, we're going to remember Jephthah's daughter. So if indeed he did kill his daughter, please hear this. This was not God's will, desire, or heart. This was a foolish vow. He should have stopped and asked God, God, do you want me to kill my daughter? He doesn't do that. And then some will note this, that Jephthah is in the hall of faith in Hebrews 11. So they go, well, if he's in the hall of faith, then there's no way that he would have sacrificed his daughter. And I go, wait a second. All the guys in the hall of faith are jacked up. All of them. I mean, Moses murdered somebody and he's still in the hall of faith. And that's the point of God's grace and, and his mercy. So you can't say that to then, then say that he didn't kill his daughter. But be clear that it was never God's heart for human sacrifice. And I think the lesson here from Jephthah is one of the hardest in the scriptures of be careful with your vows. Be careful with these foolish vows because at the end of the day, it appears to me that the daughter did lose her life. At the very least, she lost the opportunity to be married and to have kids. The, the point is clear. Be careful with those foolish vows. We're going to quickly go through chapter 12. I'm going to read the first half of the chapter and then summarize the second half of the chapter. It's a continuation of the story, so I wanted to cover it tonight. Then the men of Ephraim gathered together, crossed over towards Zaphon, and said to Jephthah, Why do you cross over to fight against the people of Ammon? And do not call us to go with you. We will burn your house down on you with fire. They did this with Gideon as well. The same tribe, Ephraim, saying, wait a second, we didn't get involved in the battle. And they come ready to, to fight Jephthah, just like they did Gideon. This is absolute nonsense. This is absolute foolishness. And we're going to see the destruction that it leads to. Instead of celebrating the victory, they allowed their pride to get in the way. And Jephthah said to them, my people... 
and I were in great struggle with the people of Ammon. And when I called you, did, you did not deliver me out of their hands. He's saying, guys, you had an opportunity to come to the battle, and you didn't come. Verse 3, so when I saw that you would not deliver me, I took my life in my hands and crossed over against the people of Ammon, and the Lord delivered them into my hand. Why then have you come up to me this day to fight against me? We're going to find that Jephthah takes a different approach than Gideon. Gideon's a peacemaker. Gideon understands that these are his fellow brothers, the tribe of Ephraim. He's not going to start a war over it. Jephthah doesn't do that. Jephthah grew up on the other side of the tracks. And we find in verse 2 and 3, there's a lot of personal pronouns, aren't there? Me, I, my. And whenever we start throwing around the personal pronouns, I, me, my, look out. We should step back because damage is, is coming. Verse 4, now Jephthah gathered together all the men of Gilead and fought against Ephraim. And the men of Gilead defeated Ephraim because they said, you Gileadites are fugitives from Ephraim among the Ephraimites and among the the Manassites. There's a lot of ites in this chapter. Out of sights. Yeah. Verse 5, The Gilites seized the fords of the Jordan before the Ephraimites arrived. And when any Ephraimite who escaped said, let me cross over. So coming across the the river, the men of Gilead would say, are you an Ephraimite? And if he said no, then they would say to him, then say, Shibboleth. And he would say, Sibboleth, for he could not pronounce it right. He couldn't pronounce the S-H. So it's like asking someone from Boston to say park, right? It's like they can't pronounce the R. Pock, pock. No, all right, you're not from around here. So they would identify the Ephraimites this way. Then they would take him and kill him at the fords of the Jordan. There fell at that time 42,000 Ephraimites. This is heartbreaking to see this kind of division amongst the people of God. This is completely unnecessary. This is because someone's pride got all puffed up And then someone else's pride got all puffed up. Ephraimites didn't have to act this way. Jephthah didn't have to act this way. Jephthah could have been the bigger man and said, sorry guys, I'll make sure to text you next time. You know, five times. He could have even done like Gideon did and said, no, you guys are the the bigger men. You guys are the toughest tribe. I'll even go out and get you a trophy that says, Ephraim is the toughest tribe. You know, you guys can can be, be the best. 42,000, that's a lot of people. 42,000. 1,500 people have died from the Ebola virus. That's heartbreaking, 1,500. This is 42,000 people died for senseless division. How many Christians and how many churches and how many works of God have been destroyed over senseless division that can only be traced back to pride? They're not biblical issues. It's where our sin gets in the way. Verse 7, and Jephthah judged Israel six years. Then Jephthah the Gileadite died and was buried in amongst the cities of Gilead. For the sake of time, I'm going to summarize the next three judges. Ibzan, Ewan, and Abdon. There's very little detail about those judges. Feel free to read verse 8 through verse 15, but the scripture doesn't tell us much about their lives. So here's the application for us tonight. And the first is this, is that you can rise above the pit of your past. You can rise above the pit 
of your past. Jesus, the ultimate deliverer, comes and rescues us out of a pit. And if you're sitting here tonight and you're saying, you know what, this is who my parents were. This is the reality of my family background. God couldn't use me. This is the reality of my own background, of my own sin, of my own struggle. God couldn't use me. You've got a difficult time making that case. Look at the examples of Scripture. You're the exact person that God wants to raise up. Be very careful with your vows. Be very, very careful with your vows. When you make a solemn commitment before God, God has every intention that you would keep it. And Jephthah made a foolish vow that didn't reflect the heart of God. And then finally, real pain of the division inside of the body of Christ. We need to examine our own hearts and our own lives and say, God, am I dividing your body? Is my pride getting in the way? Am I allowing my own personal offense to then cause destruction amongst believers? So some hard lessons, a little Labor Day gift for you from Rocky Mountain Calvary. You know, it, it's always funny going through the scriptures verse by verse. Is sometimes they just fall on some of the oddest. I remember one like Mother's Day message was just brutal. You know, it's like, I think we were in the book of Joshua and it was just absolutely brutal. It's like, happy Mother's Day, you know. But if you took a break for every holiday, you'd never get through a book of the Bible, right? And so... The scripture is always good. Let's stand and pray together.